Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When we began our, our look at the book of Joshua, I talked about it as a story of the people of God entering the, into the promise. This is the land that they've been promised, and after a long exile, God is going to lead them into the land. And so it's a story that we might recognize as a story of redemption, a story even of salvation that we can look back on as the people of God and, and learn lessons from. But we saw last time in the fall of Jericho, and we'll see again in chapter 7, that uh, every story has more than one side. While it's true that for some people in the narrative, this is a story of salvation, it is also true that the very same deeds for others are a story of judgment. So at the same time that a story of salvation is being told, there is also a story of judgment. In chapter 7, immediately after the, the fall of Jericho, that great city whose walls came tumbling down, Joshua sends out scouts to essentially advance his victory. He's got one victory under his belt. Now he's looking for the next place to conquer. So he sends scouts to a nearby city, Ai. And the scouts come back and they say, you know what? That's actually a pretty small outpost. We don't need to move the whole army there. We don't need to bring the entire people of Israel there because that would be some hard marching. Why don't we just break off about two or 3,000 men and send them up to this little town? They will easily conquer. And so Joshua does what the spies suggest. He takes a detachment of about 3,000. He sends them to Ai. Now, they have just spectacularly defeated Jericho without firing a shot. Well, I mean, nobody fired shots back then, but without without uh, uh, having to do anything, uh, shoot rocks at the walls or anything like that. Like the, the walls just fell before them. Great victory. But now this force of 3,000 men marches to the tiny town of Ai, and they're defeated. They are chased away. 36 men are killed, and the people of Ai chase them away. They run away from their enemies. And when this defeat takes place, it fills the children of God's hearts with fear. Their hearts melt inside them. And Joshua reacts with despair. The same Joshua who had spoken with the army commander, the commander of the Lord's army, the same Joshua who had just seen the walls of Jericho fall at this defeat is, is basically wringing his hands. He kneels down before the Ark of the Covenant with the elders. He covers his head in ashes, and he says, Why have you done this, Lord? Why did you bring us here only to be defeated? He says, It would have been better for us if we would have learned to be content living on the other side of the Jordan. It would have been better if we hadn't even come here. Uh, these people, when they hear about our defeat, they're going to be emboldened. They're going to come after us, and they're going to cut off our name. And then what are you going to do, Lord? Then how are you going to glorify yourself once your people have been massacred? But then God comes to him and he explains what has happened. He says to him, get up, get up, stop complaining. The problem isn't me, the problem is you. 
There's sin in the camp. The people have disobeyed. The devoted things from Jericho that were meant to be destroyed, they haven't been destroyed. Someone has taken what was meant to be destroyed for themselves. And because of that, you cannot stand against your enemies. Israel has sinned, and because of that, Israel cannot stand against its enemies. So God says you have to get rid of the devoted things. Otherwise, I cannot be with you. And he gives them the the way of doing it, that the entire nation is going to be paraded before the ark. It's interesting to see that because of the sin of one person, the entire nation suffers. The whole people of Israel have to come before the Ark of the Covenant, and God, through lots, will choose and narrow it down. First, the tribes will come, and then once a tribe is chosen, then the the clans within the tribe will come, and so on and so forth. And there's a judgment that will happen to the one who is guilty. And that's our text, Joshua 7, 15. The Lord says to Joshua, He who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So he's transgressed the covenant. That's the crime. And the punishment is destruction. The same destruction that was meant to be poured out on these devoted things will now fall on the one who has taken them. So sure enough, God reveals the culprit. The people come before him, the tribes, the 12 tribes come, and by lot, the tribe of Judah is chosen. And then the clans of Judah process forth, and by lot, the Zarahites are chosen. And then the Zarahites have to parade their households, their families, which are large family units before the Ark of the Covenant. And by lot, Zabdi is chosen. And then the household of Zabdi, man by man, goes before the ark. And one man, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, of the Zarahites, of the clan of Judah, is chosen as the guilty one. Joshua comes to him. And these are the words Joshua says to Achan. He says, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So he says to the guilty man, give praise to God, give glory to God, and now confess your sin. A pattern not unlike the pattern that has gotten us to where we are this morning. We've given glory to God and now before God confess what we have done. And so Achan confesses his sin. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And there's something interesting about this confession of sin. In the Hebrew, the verbs that Achan uses to confess his sin are precisely the verbs that are used in Genesis 3 to describe the sin of our first parents. In Genesis 3, they read that, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired or coveted to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her that he ate. Saw, coveted or desired, and took. 
the exact same pattern of that first sin repeats itself in Achan's sin as he confesses what he's done. And the rest of the chapter proceeds rather grimly. The messengers are sent. They find the hidden goods underneath his tent. They take Achan. They take the things. And they take his sons and his daughters. And they take his livestock and his tent and everything that he has outside the camp where they're stoned and burned. And that's their punishment. Joshua says to Achan before he kills him, why have you brought trouble on us? Today the Lord will bring trouble on you. And the author of Joshua says that to this day, if you go to this place, the Valley of Achor, which is the Valley of Trouble, you'll find all of these rocks piled up. And those are the rocks that were piled up on top of this man, Achan, and all that he had. And that sentence was executed. When you think about these two chapters that we've looked at last week and this week together, the fall of Jericho and what happened there, and then the, the crime of Achan and its penalty. When you look at the big picture, comparing those things, you see this, this two-sided part of the story that I talked about. Salvation on the one hand and judgment on the other. Right? This is salvation for the people of Israel entering into the promise, but it's also judgment on the Amorites, the Canaanites. From the point of view of God's children, this is a story of reward. But from the point of view of those who Paul later on in Ephesians 2 would call the children of wrath, it's not a story of reward. It's a story of punishment. Now, in Joshua 6, we saw something interesting. The power of faith to borrowing, again, from Paul's terms, the power of faith to transform children of wrath into the children of God. Because not all the Canaanites, not all the Amorites, were subject to judgment. Rahab and her family were spared. They moved from one column to the other, so to speak. They moved from judgment to salvation, being united to the people of God through Rahab's faith. And now in Joshua 7, we see another reality that Paul would recognize, that not every member of the visible covenant community is one inwardly by faith. Achan's sin separates him and his family from Israel, just as Rahab's faith united herself and her family to Israel. The parallels are even closer because the tribe of Judah, the tribe that Achan is removed from, is the tribe that Rahab marries into. So in these two chapters, you see this, this movement, like two peoples, one being saved, another being judged, and then you see this movement from, from those who are being judged to those who are being saved, but also a corresponding movement in Achan's case, right, where, where some of the, the covenant people now fall under the judgment. What a terrible judgment it is. We talked last time about how shocking the fall of Jericho is, and, and this chapter gives us another shocking incident because the, the shocking judgment that fell on Jericho now falls again on Achan and his family. He becomes subject to the same penalty that is attached to the goods which he stole. 
And for us as, as 21st century people reading the Old Testament and, and puzzling over the things that God orders, that he commands, that he condones, the things that are done in his name, this kind of judgment is terrible to behold and difficult to justify, hard to explain. And there are two easy ways to approach this judgment, two easy ways that we could deal with the problem that this harsh penalty brings about. And then there's a third, but that's much harder. So we'll look at the easy ones first, and we'll save the hard one. First, when we're confronted by awkward passages of Scripture like this, where where things are being done that that don't sit well with us morally, uh, an easy way to deal with them is to lower your view of Scripture. Lower your view of Scripture. The judgment on Jericho and on Achan's family, it's appalling, but it's only a problem if you accept the Bible's claims at face value. If you see the Bible as the Word of God, if you see all of it, this whole library of texts from thousands of years, if you see all of that as somehow having to hang together and be consistent, then this presents a problem because it means that the New Testament God of love and forgiveness back in the Old Testament was ordering things that don't seem very loving or forgiving. That's not a problem, though, if we can tell ourselves that the Bible isn't what it claims to be. If the Bible is, in fact, just an anthology of human writings that were cobbled together over time, and, you know, a lot of primitive people contributed to this book, some sophisticated, others not. And so when they put all of the books together, the people who went and edited, they didn't always redact the stuff that they should have. So when they put together the loving stuff, the, the people who had the more advanced, loving understanding of God, they didn't go back and take out all the unloving stuff the way they should have. And it's just an awkward reality of uh, the Bible we've inherited. But there's some good parts, but there's also some not so good parts. And the main thing is for enlightened 21st century Christians to not give too much weight to the bad parts and, and make sure that our faith is grounded in the good stuff and that we don't take too seriously the bad stuff. Whoever wrote this stuff, this book of Joshua, must have been pretty primitive in his understanding of God. He just didn't realize these are things God would never condone. God would have stopped if he could have. He just didn't know. But now we do. Now, a lot of times you hear that, that attitude towards Scripture, and you associate that with uh, liberal theology. I mean, people don't really believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But I would say, practically speaking, a lot of evangelicals also take this kind of an approach to Scripture, where we distance ourselves from the parts we don't like. We think of ourselves as New Testament Christians, and we want to bury the Old Testament a little bit, not pay too much attention to those awkward teachings of the Old Testament. But there are some problems with this easy answer. The first is one I hope we've seen a lot already in this series, which is the profound continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. You think, especially in terms of the idea of covenant, the idea that the promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in the New Testament, then if you get rid of the Old Testament and you start burying that, suddenly a lot of the New Testament stops being intelligible. It stops making sense because you lose 
that thread of continuity, that covenant of grace. It's also interesting, too, if you look at specific cases, if the penalty that Achan receives seems harsh, if you look in Acts chapter 5, you will be similarly shocked by what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, who are guilty of a similar kind of penalty, where they hold back from God things that have been dedicated to him. Ironically, in their case, dedicated to him by them, and yet they hold them back. So when we say to ourselves, looking at Joshua 7, well, the God of love would, would never do something like this. Well, even in the New Testament, the God of love does things that are inconsistent with our idea of how he ought to behave. Another problem is Jesus, our Lord and Savior, when he looks back at the Old Testament, doesn't see it as an embarrassing collection of old-fashioned documents that have a lesser evolved view of God. Jesus regards the Old Testament as the word of God. He takes its claims seriously. Jesus is, as I said earlier, named after Joshua and descended from Rahab. Of course, he took these things as authoritative. There's another thing I want you to see, which is that this kind of thing, these judgments being inflicted, are not just shocking to us. Like you might tell yourself, we know better now, 21st century people, sure in the past, people thought it was okay to just, you know, put your enemy to the sword and and kill everybody. But now we wouldn't do things like this. It wasn't shocking to them, but it's shocking to us now. But the reality is this has always been shocking. Even in scripture, you'll find commands like this given and, and not obeyed, not just because things are stolen, but sometimes people are spared. It's in the case of King Saul later on. You look at the history of Christian interpretation as well. You might think that Christian interpreters are more accepting of this sort of thing than modern Christians would be, but that's not true either. If you go back and look at the history of interpretation, ancient interpreters have to confront the the brutality, the harshness of these judgments. If you read, for example, Matthew Henry's commentary, Matthew Henry goes to great lengths try to demonstrate why we shouldn't look at what happens in Joshua 7 as normative, as as the kind of way that we can behave now, because he doesn't want Christians to start reading their Old Testament and thinking, hey, we should put all our enemies to the sword, because God said so. So this has always been troubling. This has always been difficult, something to try to come to terms with. Lowering your view of Scripture isn't a good solution to the problem. It is an easy answer, but it's not a good answer. So there's a second possibility. We don't want to lower our view of Scripture. We could just lower our view of the condemned. We could just lower our view of the Amorites or of Achan and his family. And this is what theologians have often done. So you'll find a whole uh, sort of history of interpretation where people will explain to you, look, I know this seems harsh, but you have to realize these Amorites, they were really bad. And if you had realized just how bad they were, you would have no problem with them being put to the sword. There's some basis for this. If you go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 15, when God is speaking to Abraham and he's predicting the events that are happening in the book of Joshua, the return of God's children to this promised land. God does say to Abraham that that the return will be delayed to the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
So interpreters looking at that have said, okay, well, the Amorites, they've got a, a lot of iniquity that they're going to do. They're going to be super bad. And so once they've reached that sort of pinnacle of badness, then judgment is going to come upon them. So it's not as shocking as it seems. These people actually do deserve what they get. We shouldn't be shocked by it. We're only shocked because we don't know about their depravity. We don't know about their crimes. Even that, though, seems ultimately unsatisfying because it's kind of hard to talk about the, the depravity, the crimes of their children. That everyone is put to the sword. Now, some people, even pastors of mine, have said, well, God, because he's all-knowing, looked down the corridors of time, and he anticipated that these infants were going to be especially bad. So it was totally okay to put them to the sword. Okay, if you can justify that in your mind, but what about the donkeys? Were they really depraved donkeys? The really bad livestock that they needed to be killed? Ultimately, I think it's unsatisfying. If we're going to say this group of humans, this group of people, they were so utterly bad that they were deserving of this thing that if it had happened to anybody else, we would be outraged. Ultimately, it doesn't satisfy. Not only that, but this easy answer, I think, explains why a lot of people prefer the first easy answer. Because if you give them a choice between lowering their view of Scripture to make the shock go away, or lowering their view of people to make the shock go away so that it's okay to, uh, to, to put everybody to the sword, they're just going to choose the first. In fact, the, the idea that, that religious people choose the second option seems like that's the problem with religion. That's why I don't want to have anything to do with accepting the claims of the Bible at face value. So obviously, if I tell you there are two easy answers and one hard one, you know which one I'm intending for you to take, and it's not one of the easy ones. But I just wanted you to see that these common answers, which are rationalizations that are often used when we approach texts like this, they're not satisfying. I'm not claiming that the third way is going to be satisfying. It's going to be harder, and in some ways, just as unsatisfying the only claim I'm going to make for it is I think it's the right way to approach this. It's the right question to ask ourselves. I think we need to admit that the events that are taking place in the conquest, this is a different epoch of revelation. God does reveal himself in scripture progressively. He doesn't say everything that we need to know about him right at the beginning. And so we learn the nature of God over time. We can admit that. but. What that doesn't mean is that what we learn later about God cancels out what he revealed about himself earlier. It doesn't make untrue what, what the Old Testament says about God, the fact that in the New Testament we learn more about him. So despite these concessions, we have to insist that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same, that the God of Joshua is the God of Jesus. To go further, that Jesus is the God of Joshua. So the struggle that we have is not to remove the shock. The struggle is not how to get rid of the shock, to make it not shocking anymore. And I think the problem is that's often what we try to do, to get rid of the shock. 
But I think the real struggle is to find value in having to contemplate things that cannot be anything but shocking. We're so quick to rationalize away what we can never explain. But maybe the things we can't explain are there for a reason. And that's the hard thing. The hard way is to ask ourselves, what does this mind-boggling slaughter signify? What is it that this is preventing us from forgetting? What does it point to? If you ask that question long enough, the answer, I think, is going to be that it's pointing to sin and its consequences. In the book of Job, as Job dialogues with his friends, there's something he says to his friends at the end of chapter 19 that sticks in my mind as I think about these judgments. Job says to his friends, Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. I don't think he's trying to justify violence or say, oh, it's good. It's good to fall under the sword. But there is a connection that he makes between the punishment of the sword and the knowledge of the memory that it brings. And the knowledge it brings is that there is a judgment. That as much as we revel in the joy of the story of salvation, We shouldn't allow the comfort that we have in Christ to blind us to the story of judgment and the reality of judgment and the terror of judgment. Now, part of the shock of judgment like this is that it seems so out of proportion to the crime that has been committed. Aiken stole some things. Okay, he's a thief. Go ahead. Kill him. People of Jericho, the fighting men, they fought, they were defeated, okay, all right. But everybody? Everybody? What crime did they all commit? What crime were they all guilty of? Is it a crime to be born? The fact that when asked that question, we answer instinctively, no, of course not, obviously not. It would be ridiculous to say yes to that, shows how much distance there is between us and and the fundamentals of our Christian faith. Because the Christian doctrine of sin, the transmission of sin, this thing we call original sin, says we're all born under the penalty. We're all born with a corruption that comes from sin, born under judgment born under judgment. So Paul's term that I quoted earlier, children of wrath, it's not a term that he uses to describe the particularly depraved humans. When he says children of wrath, he doesn't mean people like Hitler and Stalin. It just means people. It just means people, human beings. There is a condemnation that we were all born under. We just don't take it that seriously. And there's a lot of things that we profess to believe that we don't take that seriously, that we don't take that literally, which is why it's so much more troubling to read in the book of Joshua that there was this ancient massacre than it is to confess in our creed 
that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. I don't know about you, but if you're asking me to choose between a faith that says occasionally some people are going to be slaughtered, even though they're innocent, but ultimately there will be no judgment, versus nobody is treated badly in this life, but there will be a final reckoning. I would take the first one. I'm not saying that's that's good or satisfying. I'm just saying in terms of the consequences and the stakes, final judgment as the Bible speaks about it, as our faith speaks about it, is worse than the thing that we're so troubled by. It is more permanent, more final, more all-encompassing. That's where the real shock is. That's where the real horror terror is, and sometimes these smaller things perhaps are here to remind us of that much larger one. As we confess it, and we say that we believe it, and our faith is founded on it, but we don't act like that's a real thing. We don't act like that's something to be taken seriously. And the problem is that when sin and its consequences lose their power to shock, then the death of Christ becomes the way of salvation that nobody actually needs. They're combined. This way of salvation and this story of judgment aren't two separate things. You don't get one without the other. There is no salvation without something to be saved from, delivered from. If you think about that comparison between Achan and Rahab earlier, it's interesting. I I think about Achan as almost like the anti-Rahab. You know, his story is the opposite of hers. Like she, through faith, unites herself to the people of God. And he, through an act that shows an absence of faith, a lack of faith, separates himself from the people of God. And those actions have larger consequences. They are acting not just for themselves, but also for their families as well, the bigger repercussions. And if you think that way, you think about those parallels, those those echoes, then there's another echo that we have to keep in mind. It's not just Rahab and Achan, but also Christ. There was a man who, out of all the people of Israel, was singled out by God, also from the tribe of Judah. A man who was taken outside by the people outside the camp, and was killed for sin. A man who received the harshest, most terrible judgment, who, unlike any person who endured judgment, was wholly blameless, completely undeserving. And that was our Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike Achan, who was one man whose sin dragged down the whole nation, Jesus was sinless, but he took upon himself the sins of the nation. He wasn't guilty, but he died for the guilty. He received the judgment so that we would not have to endure it. Achan's sin meant that God was no longer with the people. But Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, whose very name proclaims God with us. Through his act, God is with his people, in union with them, combined with them. 
he endured terrible judgment so that you can enjoy glorious salvation. There's no way, having talked about judgment so much, that we can end on a happy note without devaluing the harshness of what we've seen. And yet, you don't have to be happy to feel joy. The joy, as Christians, is not that there is no judgment. The joy is that we escape judgment by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has endured that judgment on our behalf. The reality of judgment on sinners, the reality of judgment on Christ shows us how terrible our sin truly is. A fact that, frankly, is easy to forget. The sins of others stink to heaven. Our own sins are justified. And yet we see what the penalty of sin is in the eyes of God, and suddenly, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong about our own sin as well. If this is the penalty, then how bad must the fault be? Judgment like this also shows that your sin affects not just you. That sometimes in life we act, we sin, and the consequences leak outside of ourselves. We don't just drag ourselves down, we drag down our families, our clans, our churches, our tribes. We're in this together. Judgment like this also shows that we have no hope apart from Christ. Because let's be honest, Achan didn't do anything that we haven't ourselves been guilty of. The crime of this man was that although he knew the command of God, In the moment, there was a really nice robe and some money, and it looked really good. And in that moment, he chose those things over God above. He loved, he desired, he coveted those things more than he loved the God who made him. Haven't we all done the same thing? And perhaps if that's the case, then we're no more undeserving than him. Judgment shows us all these things. It's not easy to be shown these things. I don't like showing them any more than you like seeing them. But it's here for a reason. God holds it out to us to teach us. But it ought to do more than just show us something. The reality of judgment should do more than just show us something. It should actually change something, too. It should change us, too. The shock of judgment should add urgency to our desire to share grace. To share grace. I don't mean to convert, to proselytize, to hit people over the head with the Bible, to share, to share what has been given us. If it is actually true that we were under judgment, that we had a problem of sin that we could not deal with ourselves, and that our only hope, our only remedy, our only comfort in salvation was Jesus Christ, then, then that's a good thing that's been done for us. And if it's true that the people we love are like us, if they're fallen like us, if they're under the penalty of sin like us, then it's natural to share the things you love with the people you love. 
And the only thing that prevents us from seeing that and feeling the urgency of it is that we stop believing in the reality of that judgment. A theologian, Robert Latham, says you can judge the history of the church, historically speaking, by seeing how literally, how real it sees the judgment. Because the more real the judgment is, the more we cling to Christ, the more we embrace the reality of Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. If he had stopped there, then the end of the story would be the story of judgment. But he goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God, eternal life, not death, not judgment, but life with God, free from the judgment, because God loved you so much that he bore the judgment for you. That's where the joy is found behind the judgment. The wages of sin is death, but death doesn't have to be the last word. Jesus Christ has conquered death. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.